Greetings, salutations, and all that jazz. Welcome to the Insert Clever and Witty Name Here podcast. My name is Mike, and thank you, as always, for taking some time out to enjoy, hopefully, what I have for you this time around on this Monday afternoon. Well, as I'm sitting here Monday afternoon in the lovely world of podcasts, who knows when you're actually listening to this. As I crank these out only once a week, I've got other things to do. I've got two kids in a pool, so what can I tell you? What I can tell you is how my dad is doing, which I will. In fact, I've got my phone here. I got a text from my mom earlier today that I, I really am chomping at the bit to read to you, and I will with some uh, incredible news that I've shared with a couple people. Um, my cousin Julie who I spoke to earlier today. And if she's listening to this, hey, Julie, thanks for listening. Subscribe, by the way, too, Julie, because I do these once a week. My godfather actually reached out to me on Facebook Messenger. He called me on Facebook Messenger. He's like, I don't even know how this stuff works, <laughs> but I wanted to touch base. I saw you were online. I wanted to ask you about your dad. So he knows, and Julie knows, and, and obviously... My mom and my sister know, but I will share that with you. It's an exclusive. And the fact that I'm a little bit more jovial this week tells you that it's good news. And I will get to that, I promise. we got 45 minutes, well, a little less than that now. So I will get to that in conclusion. We'll spend the bulk of the time talking about that. But yesterday was Father's Day. So I, I came across this last week, and I shared it on the air. And I hope that you do get a chance to listen to me mo most days of the week on my 97.5. It's my mornings with my pesto. A couple ways you can listen if you happen to be in Kings or Tulare counties in California, San Joaquin Valley, you can listen on uh, the radio, 97.5. If you're anywhere else on the planet, for that matter, and maybe even the far reaches of space, I don't know how all that works. But when it comes to listening online... You can listen a couple of different ways online at my975fm.com. We have a mobile app. You can listen that way, and there's a lot of other apps out there. TuneIn is one of them that I have. I think there's even radio.com. So however you want to reach out, if you have an Alexa or Google Home Mini, which is what we have at the house, um, for dinner most nights of the week if we want to listen to music and you know, we want to listen to Daddy's Radio Station, uh, as my daughter daughter calls it. You can uh, just say, hey, Google, play My 97.5. And lo and behold, she actually knows the station. I hope she gets a diary at some point so we get some ratings points <laughs> for Google. I don't know. What is it with Google? With 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 Alexa, it's Alexa. With, does Google have a name? I don't even know because I have iPhones and and an iMac and things like that. So I know that's Surrey. Alexa is Alexa. I don't know what, if Google has a name or not. Just, hey, Google, I guess. All right, so I came across this, and I shared it again on my 97.5 last week before Father's Day. But I thought here we are just the day after. I'd share it with you as well. The daddest states where dad jokes abound. And you know, I'll explain that right out of the gate. There's a criteria that went into this. What this company did is they they figured out what states are the most dad-friendly states in the country, and they ranked every single one of them, one all the way through 50. And I'll give you the, uh, the top five, actually the top 10 and the bottom 10. But the first thing that I was curious about is, all right, so what makes a state a dad-friendly state? What criteria goes into this? 
So, and I looked, and they provide that information. How we figured this out, we looked into four dad factors in each state. They looked at average amount spent yearly on child in each state. So that makes sense. Good dads you spend money on their kids, uh, one could argue. The rest of these, the other three, are uh, a bit of a stretch. They're, um, apparently, they're stereotypical Dadisms. It should have been number of ties purchased or maybe received um, <laughs> over the course of a year. But barbecue obsession is, uh, is one of the criteria when it comes to figuring out which state is the daddest state in the country, which I'm surprised there's one state. Well, actually, it is in the top five. So, okay, that makes sense. Barbecue obsession, which, again, will make sense in just a minute when I get to the actual states. Interest in New Balance, as in the shoes. So either one of two things happened. Either one, somewhere down the line with this company that put this together, they came to the conclusion that dads love New Balance shoes, which I don't have a pair. Um, Maybe the thinking is quite a few New Balance shoes are made in the USA. Not all of them. Yeah, and I will talk about this on some other podcast at some point, but and I know I've alluded to it that I am a stickler for looking at where things are made. And I will not, under most circumstances, unless it's something I really, really, really want and I can only find it made in China, I will not buy anything made in China. Not for any racial purposes. It's, so, it's only because at present, the trade deficit we have with China, um, meaning that you know, we get more things from them than we give to them. Our trade deficit with them is greater than it is with any other nation on the planet. Understandably, with the fact that, you know, children in sweatshops are working for pennies um, an hour as opposed to what minimum wage here is in America. But so I won't buy anything made in China if I can help it. And the other one is Bangladesh. Bangladesh, because of the working conditions for those kids. Now, maybe... It's just as bad in Vietnam and other places as well where you see a lot of things made. But you can only fight so many battles. So (laughs) those are the two. I will not, uh, if I can help it, buy anything in China or Bangladesh. And I'm usually fairly good with that. Every once in a while, like I bought a shirt recently at this place downtown Visalia. Simply Chic. Love shopping there because it's, uh, it's all secondhand stuff. And the profits go to, I believe, Visalia Rescue Mission or Visalia Emergency Aid. It's one of those that help people in the community who need the help. Clothes get donated to them. Uh, there may be some that are on consignment, so whoever it is provides them maybe gets a little something. But then the, the bulk of the proceeds go towards this nonprofit. And at some point, I'll have someone on that nonprofit talk simply about Simply Chic on my 97.5, but New Balance shoes getting back to this list of the most, uh, the daddiest states, not daddiest, the daddest, I don't want to create new words, um, part of their criteria is interest in New Balance, and again, the only thing I can think of is dads care about things made in America, many, not all, but many New Balance shoes are made in America, always check the tags, uh, and then the last of the four factors that went into figuring this out, popularity of dad jokes 
which is easy to do. You just check on Yahoo or Google or both search engines. Those are the two biggest ones as far as I know. Google, obviously, head and shoulders above everybody else. And they can check and see dad jokes searches. Apparently, states that search for the most must have the best dad. So that having been said, let's get to the actual list. Again, the daddest states where dad jokes abound. I'll give you the... um, How do we want to do this? Let's do the top 10 first. So I'll go from 10 to 1. South Carolina, so East Coast. Uh, I've got a little map here. I'm just checking as I do each one. So I, I, I think I remember where these states are. It's been a while since I took geography. But South Carolina on the coast. Yeah, there it is. At number 10. Midwest, looking at Tennessee at number 9 on the list. Again, these are the daddest states, so the best states in the country for dads. New Hampshire, so again, also on the East Coast. Nothing on the West Coast yet, and you'll notice a trend here in a little bit. At number eight, Delaware at number seven, and then North Carolina at six. All right, here we go. Top five, the best, daddest states in the country. And what's interesting is four of the top five are all located in the middle of the country. And then one on the East Coast. So you have Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, and Kansas. All four states that all border each other at one, two, three, and five, respectively. And then for some reason, Vermont (laughs) was just kind of thrown in there at number four. And I mentioned that barbecue was one of the criteria. Well, St. Louis-style ribs... Dads love to barbecue those. Believe me, I do. St. Louis, Missouri. Missouri, number three on the list. So, again, not that that surprising. So that's the the daddest states in the country. How about the least dad states? All right. Here we go. At number 41. Not quite the worst, but you're definitely in uh, in the running. Minnesota. I have a cousin who lives in Minnesota, Scott. I'm sure he's a wonderful dad, but his state's on the list. I don't know anyone in New Mexico. New Mexico at number 42. Nevada at 43. I know quite a few people who live in Nevada, having lived in Las Vegas at one point, so I will keep my mouth shut (laughs) when it comes to any critique of any dads in Nevada. I don't know anyone in Utah, but Utah, surprisingly a little bit to me, is at number 44 on the list. Rhode Island. Poor Rhode Island. I mean, there are towns bigger than Rhode Island, but Rhode Island at number 45 on this list. Technically, it is a state, so... And there we are, California, at number 46. I don't know why California is on this list, but it is. I I don't know what... One thing it doesn't say, it doesn't rank each category. And again, the categories for each one of these, as far as how they figure this out, average amount spent on child in each state, well... You have to spend a mint on kids in California because everything costs a mint in California. Barbecue obsession? Hello? You can barbecue in California almost any single day of the year, including Christmas Day. So uh, I don't get that one. Interest in New Balance? Uh, you know, So we're, we're flip-flops more than anything else. And I'm saying that I'm actually wearing sandals right now, and these aren't New Balance sandals, so okay. And popularity of dad jokes. We got a good sense of humor in California. I don't, I don't know about that. I want to recount. So California, by their count, at number 46. 
gets us to the bottom four. West Virginia. Now, see, at least California isn't as bad as West Virginia. West Virginia at 47 on the list. Mississippi at number 48. Here's another one that surprises me. Actually, the, the bottom two really surprised me. Hawaii? Roast pig? That, that's, that's te- is that techni- that's technically a barbecue? I would think that's technically a barbecue. Um, but then again, everyone's barefoot in Hawaii, and so no one's even heard of New Balance shoes there. Yeah, so I question the whole New Balance thing on this list, but uh, it's not my list. I'll do mine next year, maybe. Use my own criteria. Hawaii at number 49, then the worst state in the country when it comes to dads. Any idea? No, it's not Illinois. Florida. Again, I, I, I'm noticing a trend here with Hawaii and Florida, states that you don't wear shoes. You just hang out on the beach, and you've got your flip-flops on, if anything. Florida, also not known for their barbecue, I wouldn't think, although Hawaii is, at number 50 on the list. So there you go. That's, uh, that's all I got aside from what I have left for you when it comes to dad. I'm just reaching over, grabbing my phone here, because I mentioned earlier on I had this text that I got from my mom. I wanted to read to you. Um, so here was... I'm just backing up here. For well, Let me get everyone up to speed. If you haven't heard, my dad is in the hospital. He's 81 years old. Uh, a few weeks ago, he was here with my mom. They both live in Paso Robles. Um, they came out for visit, and I didn't think much of it at the time, and this may have nothing to do with anything, but we have a pool in the backyard, and it's a, it's an older home. It was built in 1979. I don't know if the pool was built the same time as the home, but it's an older pool, too, in that if it was a pool that was built today, I'm guessing there would need to be some type of handrail or something going down into the pool uh, or around the side of the pool to help you into it. This doesn't have that. It just has regular pool steps. And my dad wanted to go into the pool, and he was having a difficult time kind of negotiating getting into the pool. I mean, he's 81 years old. He's had a few heart procedures uh, in years past, and you know, he's, he's lived life. He's still very active, incredibly active. They have this back patio and a deck area with plants everywhere, and my mom told me a month or so ago, and in fact, my dad told me as well, that they have the drip line set up for quite a few of those plants. Well, it hasn't been working all that well. So my dad is out there every single day because it gets hot this time of year in Paso. And before it gets too hot, my dad is out there with either the hose or the watering can. There's a fountain in the backyard. And that has to be refilled every once in a while. My mom, for the most part, is hands-off when it comes to all that. She loves it all. We all do. They've got a beautiful backyard. There's a bocce ball court there, and there's this hill that grades down, and it's 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 really a beautiful place to be. You can see Highway 101 from <laughs> one of the dogs here with me in the studio. She's very happy about that. You like Highway 101, do you? You, you like chasing cars. That's what it is. So... Uh, you can actually see that highway from their deck. It's beautiful. And my dad is out there every day watering, and then he'll spend some time in the front yard as well, making sure that's taken care of. And then he'll sit on the couch and watch the Cubs game. Um, and they get frustrated when they don't score 15 runs in the first inning, 
Um, that's just my dad. Has <laughs> always been that way. But when he was here, again, I noticed he was having a little difficulty getting into the pool. I didn't think anything of it at the time. In retrospect, and my wife pointed that out to me, maybe we should have realized something or at least questioned my mom a little bit more about it and said, hey, is that is that normal for dad? Because we don't see him all the time and we haven't seen him much at all, either of my parents with COVID-19. Well, you know, now restrictions are gone, so we'll see them much more often, but you know, he ended up in the hospital before restrictions were lifted. He was taken to a hospital in uh, Templeton, near where they live in Paso Robles. It's a community hospital. It, it does the best it can with what it has. And he was taken in for pneumonia, improved, was sent home. Had a fever again. They said, if you get a fever, you got to come back because maybe we didn't target this with the right antibiotics, so bring it back in. Brought him back in. He was a little tired, but other than that, other than the fever, didn't have many symptoms. Was brought in on a Thursday several weeks ago. The following morning, Friday, he was, um, (laughs) I don't know how to describe it, not there um, mentally. He would lock into, well, it looked like he was locked into a certain fixed point in space where he would just kind of stare off into the distance and kind of look through the wall into whatever abyss he was looking at and wasn't responding to verbal requests to say grip your hand or stick out your tongue or wiggle your toes or do anything like that. And he was that way um, and still kind of is um, for the past you know, week or so now. So after being there for a few days and they realized he was not really getting better, he wasn't getting terribly worse, but they had done as much as they could do for him at that hospital. We asked and the hospital obliged by transferring him to UCSF. All the symptoms that he had were showing something neurological is happening. So that uh, UCSF is the second best neurological hospital in the country. The only one that's better is one in New York State, and that wasn't going to happen. And I should mention one thing that before he was transferred, he was diagnosed with meningitis. And that scared us because while we've heard that before, we weren't all that familiar with it, but at least it was a diagnosis. So it's something that we can hang a hat on and say, okay, now we can pinpoint this and go forward. We still didn't know what caused the meningitis. So we got transferred to UCSF. That was a week or so ago now. It was Well, it was a week ago yesterday. So he's been there a week and a day now. So the Sunday before Father's Day, he was transferred to UCSF. And one of the reasons I was happy that he went to UCSF is UCSF is a teaching school. As I told my uncle, and thank God my uncle has been able, my mom's brother, to come out. My, my dad does not have any other living siblings. Both of my aunts, they were fraternal twins. They passed away years ago. And and obviously Riley's not happy about that either. Do you want to go outside? It's getting a little hot in here. I know. It's okay. And I know. And you miss Papa. Riley misses Papa. Um, so my aunts were fraternal twins. They passed away. Their husbands have passed away. So the oldest one on that side of the family now is my dad. And we've 
done what we can to keep family in touch as to what's going on. And in talking with my cousin Julie earlier today, I mentioned to her, I I don't want to um, overburden is the wrong word, but um, over info. Um, give information to any family members that on a, like a daily basis that you know they they have their own lives going on. I get that, and that's no slam on them at all, in the least. Um, my thinking is to reach out and do something to say, hey, we have information. If you want it, you can call with it or call for it. Or as I'm doing with this, I'm kind of I'm, I'm not only doing these podcasts for me. But I'm also doing them for any friends or family that want the latest information. So that's, uh, that's kind of my, my mindset going into these podcasts for the past couple of weeks. And I know some of this is rehashed stuff from last week. But I promise I will get to some new stuff coming up here in just a minute or two. So <clears throat> brought to UCSF. They, um, again, being a teaching, teaching hospital, I told my uncle this. I said, this is where I, I, I want him to be for a couple of reasons. One, my, my wife was taken here and she had brain surgery here. My wife was born with a condition called Chiari malformation, which it's the, um, there's a portion of her brain, the, the bottom portion, uh, I forget. I think it's the cerebrum is the top and the cerebellum is the bottom, and then there's the medulla oblongata. I don't know why I remember all that, but I do. I think it's the cerebrum. No, it's one of the two. (laughs) It's one of those two that instead of rounding off, like you'll see in most diagrams, hers actually grew down her neck and unfortunately became like a cork, and it did not allow a good deal of flow from your spinal column to her brain and the spinal fluid, which is obviously fluid in your spine is also shared by your brain as well. It kind of keeps everything insulated and it's like a big shock, water shock absorber, if you will. Well, her blockage was, was pretty severe. So she had to have uh, brain surgery, but you know, not like you would think of typical brain surgery where they cut the top of someone's brain open and operate there. This was at kind of like the base of her neck. To this day, she has this long, maybe three to five inch scar straight down her neck. And that's where the doctors went in and they they created space. Um, nothing on her brain was cut at all. Um, I jokingly told the doctors, you know, um, I haven't always been the best of husbands. So if there's some memory of maybe some times where I really screw the pooch and and she's holding on to that if you could just kind of snip that part out i mean i'll slip a couple extra bucks your way they uh they said no we're not actually operating on her brain gosh darn it um but what they did is they created some space for that part of her brain to still stay down they didn't round it off they just let it be that's the best way to handle it and uh, that way it has more space there's more flow it, uh, it made things better for her. She'll always have some issues with fatigue and some other things. Um, but aside from that, she doesn't have the debilitating headaches that she used to have previously. And I've asked her several times when she's had bad days. And she will have bad days sometimes depending on, um, like, if a system rolls through and the, the, the barometric pressure 
changes here drastically quickly. If we lived in the Midwest, it would be a nightmare for her because you get those pop-up thunderstorms in the Midwest there that you just don't get here on the West Coast. Even here in the Valley, we don't get systems like that that roll through on a regular basis every once in a while, but but nowhere near as often as the Midwest and the, and the South and the Tornado Alley, if you will. But when those things happen and the pressure changes, it, it messes with her to this day and probably always will. So there are times she has days where I just know, I can, I can see, all right, this is a day she is going to be in bed or on the couch. So make sure she's comfortable and check in with her every once in a while. But aside from that, she is going to be, you know, just in her own place that day and just try to make her as happy as possible. So she had her brain surgery there. My father-in-law, I've, I've lost track at this point, how many back surgeries he's had. And um, you know, with it being a, a teaching hospital, learning hospital, students learning you know, the craft, the trade, they're, they're constantly asking questions. They, they, as I told my uncle, when you t- start talking about the heads of each of these departments, whether it's um, for uh, the neurology department or heart or whatever, they have, I would assume, a bit of a God complex, which I'm not a big fan of that, but in this case, I'm all about it because that doctor wants to be the one to say, yeah, you see that guy, we, he rolled in here. We didn't know exactly what was going on. We thought about meningitis and pneumonia, but we, we took everything down. We drawed it up on the dry erase board. We brainstormed. We figured out exactly what it was, and I saved his life. Cool. You be that guy. You pat yourself on the back. I personally know God had a lot more to do with it than you want to maybe think he did, but still, that's the doctor I want who is going to take it personally if something goes unaccording to plan. That's an actual word, but um, that's why I wanted him there. And that's why I'm very happy that he is there and getting, I believe the best care possible for what he is going through. (coughs) It's not the best situation in the world for my mom in that she is four hours from home. But they're at a place in their life, both retired. Uh, they did very well for themselves while they were still working, that I, I don't think this is going to be uh, an insurmountable financial hit for them. And at the end of the day, it's about saving my dad's life. So making sure that he's in the best place possible is what matters. And I believe he is. So he was taken there. They were aware of the pneumonia, which I believe he's still being treated for. They were aware of the meningitis, which he is being treated for. Uh, He's on, I think even to this day, at this very moment, on what they kept describing to me as a broad spectrum of antibiotics uh, because they hadn't nailed down specifically which bacteria was contributing to what was going on. They figured, let's take a broad spectrum atro- approach. And when I was there, I had a chance to spend the uh, the day with them Saturday. And I'll tell you about how that went in just a second. But I, um, I asked the doctor when the doctor came in, is there 
an advantage, a disadvantage to having him stay on a broad spectrum of antibiotics, where at some point you want to nail this down to know exactly what the bacteria is so you can be more targeted with it? She said, yes, that, that would be ideal, but it's not hurting him in the here and now for him to be on the broad spectrum of antibiotics. And I asked, well, what, what do you mean by the here and now? She said, well, the problem is, and maybe you've heard if you expose um, bacteria to antibiotics and it doesn't kill that bacteria, it can learn how to not be affected by that antibiotic down the road. So there may be some other bacteria in his system that are learning from this exposure that aren't being killed by it that may be a problem down the road. So ideally, you want it to be more targeted, but in the here and now, it's not a problem. Like, okay, let's worry about the here and now because in the here and now, he's not looking all that great with all the tubes and everything else. So Saturday... I was able to spend the day with him. I got there shortly after 10 o'clock and stayed shortly after 8, and those were visiting hours. And um, it's difficult being in there, and for the most part, his eyes were closed almost the entire time. And every once in a while, he would either open his eyes on his own or one of the nurses, and at UCSF, he has a nurse that is outside his room unless she's got to go to the restroom the entire time. And then if she goes to the restroom, there's another nurse that is told, hey, could you keep an eye on these monitors? And if anything beeps, go run and grab somebody. I mean, he's, he's in intensive care. So constant monitoring and a team working around the clock for him and other patients there as well. So the nurse would come in on occasion and say, George, George, and, and literally tap on his chest to try to get him to, to open his eyes. Sometimes that would work. Sometimes it wouldn't, and they would literally have to, with two fingers, uh, go clockwork orange and pry his eyes open and, and try to see if he would follow their finger and try to see if his eyes would respond to light or not. And, and they would. So that was always a good sign. I mean, you get to that point, and you're looking for anything that can even resembles a good sign. So, oh, his eyes are dilating when light hits him. That's, that's good. We'll take that. Because he's not gripping your hand when you ask him to do so. He's not wiggling his toes when you ask him to do so. If you, you take like the, the blunt end of a pen and you stroke it along your foot, if you try doing that, your foot is going to have a reaction to that, that stimuli. His doesn't at this point. Well, didn't. And I'll explain that in just a little bit. So I'm in the room with him. And for the most part, during the day, that's how things go. Um, at one point, he was hooked up to an EEG to to see uh, you see how brain activity looked for one, and then two, over the course of 24 hours, to see if there was any stroke activity. Now, there wasn't, which was good. But and I this was the the best. This was the first really good sign I had all day, and this was early afternoon. As the technician is hooking the electrodes up to his head, um, one of the things that that technician has to do is take a physical assessment of the patient. So you hook everything up, you get the computer hooked up to it, it's all set to go, then you begin just a, a physical you know, observation of the patient. And one of the things that they do is you try to get the patient to open their eyes. So as he's standing behind my dad, still getting the electrodes set up, 
said, uh, uh, Mr. Pistoresi, George. And my dad immediately opened his eyes. Didn't seem to focus on anything, but did open his eyes and then told the other technician with him to, to make a note of that. Um, no other signs that they attempted did anything. Again, the hand grips or the stick out your tongue or anything like that. And then just to make sure it wasn't a fluke, they did it again. And he did it again. So two times in a row over the course of maybe 10 minutes, he opened his eyes when asked to do so. And that was, that was phenomenal. Um, and then later in the day, this is what really encouraged me. Um, there was, I want to say someone from the cardiac unit came in and started doing the whole questioning um, with him about opening your eyes and grip my hand and do that. And again, this is, I want to say maybe six o'clock or so this past Saturday. Not only opened his eyes when she asked him to do so, but she was standing next to his bed at one point, then went to the corner of his bed. Now, he didn't follow her with his eyes, but as she got to each point, and then she would say, all right, George, can, can you look at me here? His eyes would focus and then hit her there. And then he went to the other corner of her bed. And again, he, he didn't follow her, but when she got to that spot and said, George, can you look at me here? He would do it again. And then she moved back to the side. Same thing. First time I had seen him do that since this all started. Ah. Uh, um, then, and I'm trying to remember if this was on instruction or if he did it on his own. I want to say it was a combination of both for the first time since he was in Templeton, when I, I think the meningitis was still getting a stronghold on him. So I think it's in the waning phases now, I believe based on absolutely nothing other than prayer and hope and what little anecdotal evidence I saw. Um, he moved his legs, not a lot. I mean, he didn't raise them, but just kind of, you know, moved each one a little bit. Again, he did that a little bit in Templeton, actually did it quite a bit in Templeton, where he actually would kind of lift his knee up and then put it back down. But there, it seemed like he was favoring his right side over his left, which really had us scared about a stroke. Um, turns out that that was probably just coincidental. But again, he moved both legs, and then he he moved his right, uh, I'm sorry, his left hand and arm. Not his right, but just his left. Uh, and he's right-handed. So I saw that as incredibly encouraging. And I would say... Um, let me back up a little bit. So that was about 6 o'clock. Before that, I'd say somewhere between 4 and 5, he had been, or is on a respirator now. He was intubated. Jeez, um, I want to say maybe Thursday of last week. That sounds right. I think it was Thursday of last week he was intubated. And um, 
the way the device works is it can breathe for him completely, and I'm sure it did at some point. And he was getting enough oxygen into his system. He was not expelling enough CO2. That was the big thing, and they were worried about him, in a very real sense, suffocating. And we were given the option. Um, my mom was. Um, and said, okay, we, well, a couple things we could do. We could continue giving him the antibiotics for the meningitis, and we believe we are, are giving him the right cocktail of those three, and we can hope and pray that that cocktail works before he suffocates himself, or we can intubate him. And it was like, really? The, the, intubate. <laughs> and that's what they were kind of suggesting that we do as well, but knowing it was still ultimately our decision, or my mom's. So that's what the decision was made. This was a day that my sister was with him too, that all of this came down. So it put a lot on her. Um, but she handled it great. So he was intubated. And again, the way the device works, it could do 100% of the work. It can do none of the work or it can be in assist mode. So meaning it, it's kind of hanging out. And then if they, it, it, it realizes the patient is having issues, it can, it can jump in and, and help. So at one point, and they had a technician out in the hallway monitoring those numbers every second. And he would come in like every hour or so, sometimes even more often, depending on what was going on with that machine. And at one point he came in and said, you know, your dad's really doing well. It's been in assist mode for most of the day. And most of the day he's been doing all of the work. So let's, let's take it out of assist mode and, and just see how he does. It was a little scary because there were a couple times, and actually more often than not, my dad's, you'd almost say he's, he's almost like in a dreamlike state when his eyes aren't open. And when my dad is dreaming, I don't know, he's never been diagnosed with sleep apnea, but he has a lot of what I would think would be the, the classic telltale signs. He breathes very shallowly. It's, I mean, constantly, I mean, his breaths are, are very rapid. And then nothing for 10, 15 seconds or so, and then, and then shallow breaths again. So he was doing that while in the mode where the machine was off. But in looking at the numbers, he was getting enough oxygen. He was getting enough CO2. And I asked my cousin, Chris, who is a nurse, lives in Rockford, um, does that mean that he's dreaming and this is sleep apnea? He said, no, not necessarily. Um, could be that, but what's more likely is his, his body has been used to this machine assisting him, and now his body is getting used to fending it for itself again. So it's, it's, it's an adjustment period. I'm like, okay. But during that adjustment period, when this happened again Saturday, he opened his eyes... 15, 20 times or so, like every 15, 20 minutes it seemed, at least every half hour, he would open his eyes. Uh, one time it was kind of scary because he opened his eyes and, you know, he opened his eyelids, but his eyes were kind of still rolled back into his head. Um, I didn't think he'd pass because, again, he's got equipment everywhere. There would have been some signs of that, but he certainly wasn't making eye contact with me at that point, and I was the only one in the room. But he did open his eyes quite a bit, and then with the one nurse that he locked into her at each position and moved his legs and his arm and 
and really gave a lot of great signs that he was fighting for this as much as the doctors were. And whenever I have a chance to talk with him, I, I, I keep telling him, Dad, you have an entire team of doctors here fighting for you. You have family and friends across the country um, praying for you and rooting for you. So you have to fight for yourself and fight for us in there. I know, Riley, we miss Papa. The dog is whimpering on the futon here in the studio. Yes, there's a futon in the studio. It's a guest bedroom. What can I say? But that gets me to the texts that I received from my mom this morning. And in the five minutes or so that we have left, I wanted to uh, to share these with you. Um, this morning, uh, shortly before or shortly after visiting time began, so this was about 8.50 or so, I asked about any results. I can't remember if I mentioned, I don't believe I have, yesterday the, um, the doctor told my mom that they think he has West Nile. And I know nothing about West Nile other than I believe the only or one of the primary ways you get West Nile is from mosquito bites. I believe, and I haven't heard this from the doctor yet, that that is good news in that it'll help them more easily target the type of bacteria that is causing the meningitis. So that's good news. So again, I shot this text to my mom just asking if there are any results or anything noteworthy happened. And she said about the same. Uh, doctor was happy when West Nile was diagnosed because at least we know what it is. Not much improvement opening in his eyes about the same amount of time. But <laughs> in the afternoon, and this is her saying what happened on Father's Day Sunday. As I was talking to him, I told him that I love him. And a tear ran down his cheek. So he is hearing us. And comprehending what we are saying, his body just won't let him respond yet. Baby steps. Uh, that, that was a blessing. Not only that it happened, but that it happened with my mom in there. That she saw it, that she experienced it because she needs every great sign that can happen right now. So um, I don't, you know, I, I followed that up with a text asking, has he officially now been diagnosed uh, with having gotten this through West Nile? Which brings up a whole lot of other questions. Like, where did he get it? As I mentioned, he spent the weekend before this all happened here in Visalia. And we have a creek that runs near our backyard Packwood Creek, and it's not flowing right now, but there's still some mud back there. I don't know if mosquitoes can lay eggs in mud, but my wife has been bitten by some mosquitoes and trying to figure out, do we have a West Nile problem here in Visalia, or was he bitten by a mosquito in Paso Robles, or can you get West Nile by some other means other than a mosquito bite? All great questions. I'd love to find out from the doctor. But my mom responded to some of my questions with this. When I got to the hospital, they were giving him an EMG, which is basically to measure uh, strength of his muscles. 
and it should have the results later this afternoon. I don't have those at this point. Otherwise, I would be more than happy to share those with you. And then some other good news. I'm glad my mom was in there to see. He also raised his arm while I was in there with him across his chest and wiggled his toe. So the fact that he raised his arm and then crossed his chest with his arm was um, was really good news. And then the last text that I got from my mom that it would be sometime between 8.30 and 9 o'clock tonight that I get whatever happened today from her. She's going to call both my sister and I, do a conference call, and give us the latest. So I obviously don't have that at this point. But whatever I get, I will share with friends and family online. If um, if you haven't friended me on Facebook yet, please do, and I'll update Facebook. And I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, and I'll try to update those a little bit better on a little bit more regular basis as well. Um, and talking with my cousin Julie earlier, if I don't sound as stressed about this as maybe you think I should, it's because I know God is in control. Whatever God wants to happen is going to happen. Um, and I, I need to be at peace with that, whatever ultimately ends up happening. I have to feel that my dad is coming back to us, and I feel he is. And it's an account because you are keeping him in your thoughts and prayers, and thank you for doing that. And thank you for the time this week. Um, hopefully I'll have some more for you next week and bring something else to the table as well to keep everybody entertained. In the meantime, be safe, be well, and if there's anything you do want to express to me, anything you want me to talk about with these podcasts, you can email me, Mike. Pesto, M-I-K-E-P-E-S-T-O at M-E dot com. And thank you for checking out the Insert Clever and Witty Name Here podcast this week.